Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see the Stringer family back uh, after a long trip. Good to see you, Joel and Kim. Uh, I also want to introduce um, <clears throat> a sister who's uh, here with us for the first time. Uh, I have a Lauren Kim visiting us. Lauren, could you raise your hand for us? She's uh, sitting in the middle over there. So give her a warm welcome. Glad you can join us today. All right. Um, I'll be reading from <clears throat> the book of Acts as we continue our series today. Uh, part 16. Uh, message title is A Road to Gaza. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40. This is God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Today, uh, we're going to learn some important lessons through the life and ministry of Deacon Philip. Right, Philip was one of the original seven who was chosen a few chapters back, and he's also called an evangelist later in this book, and today you'll see why that special designation was given to him. I'm going to stick with my uh, usual three-point outline today, uh, and uh, initially, the, the wording I'm using here, it's not going to make much sense to you, but Lord willing, uh, what's obscure will be made clear to you by the end of the message I'm trying to be poetic here, so here's some, some language that hopefully uh, will stick uh, eventually. Okay, outline is this. Part one, to a desert place, all right, to a desert place. Part two, the restless wanderer. And part three, 
faithful followers. Okay, and so that'll be the progression. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by each of these. Okay, part one to a desert place. We need to remember the basic flow of the storyline leading up to this point. A couple chapters ago, Stephen, the other deacon, he was seized by the Jewish authorities for preaching Christ. But instead of toning down his message before them, he directly accused them of betraying and murdering Christ, which not only led to his brutal death by stoning, but it led to a more intense persecution of Christians in Jerusalem and in that region of Judea. And we learned that God providentially used persecution to scatter his people outward. Right? He wanted his people out of Jerusalem so that the gospel could go forth into Samaria, which was a place that no Jew in their right mind would have been willing to enter into given the bad blood that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans throughout their long history. And one of the primary figures whom God used to bring about a great revival in Samaria was none other than Philip. And I want you to think about what is happening here, right? We, we ought not to downplay the significance of what took place in Samaria. There was a massive revival. Basically, you can think of it this way. Whatever happened in Jerusalem during Pentecost, you're seeing very similar things happening in Samaria. So it says in Philip, that Philip went down to the city of Samaria in verse 5, proclaimed them uh, Christ, and, and then things started happening, right? All these miracles started uh, to be witnessed, and, and at the end, there was so much joy in the city because people were encountered by Christ, and, and they, they, they realized who the true God was. They're giving their lives to him, and there was much rejoicing. And so th this was such an unbelievably shocking phenomena that the apostles themselves had to show up to confirm that what was happening in this, this cursed land of Samaria was, was actually truly from God. And the guy that was smack in the middle of all this was Deacon Philip. You know, God was using Deacon Philip as a catalyst to spark this unthinkable revival. And I want, I want you to do your best to, to place yourself in, in Philip's shoes, okay? Um, for those of you who love doing ministry, I, I'm, I'm trusting there's a good number of you who, who still enjoy doing ministry, even, uh, even as we had a difficult uh, year and a half now of ministry. But those of you who still love doing ministry, right? I mean, what you witness here in Samaria, I mean, these, these are the reasons why ministry is exciting, isn't it? You know, what makes ministry exciting is when you see people who once hated God become lovers of God, right? It, it's, it's the very reason why you labor so hard in whatever ministry context you may be in now. It's why you pray fervently 
It's why you study scripture. It's why you study the culture around you. It's why you engage in apologetics. Right? You, you try to engage with people who are perhaps unbelievers so that you can bring them to faith. Because you have hope that one day you'll be able to be used by God, just like Philip is being used here, to experience some kind of revival where you are. This was like a, a perfect mission trip for Philip, right? He, he comes to Samaria, and my goodness, things are happening. It's like the perfect mission trip. And I know that some of you love to go on mission trips. Imagine if, if, if your ministry just kind of exploded with people wanting to give their lives to Christ. I mean, who would want to leave such a place? Right? If you left for Thailand and something incredible happened, why would you want to leave that place you want to stay and experience God's grace in, more, in, in greater abundance, would you not? You want to be there to, to encourage and edify and strengthen these young believers, would you not? I obviously have no way of knowing exactly what Philip was thinking here, but I, I could imagine that he was on this spiritual high, and he must have thought there was, there was so much more work that needed to be done here in Samaria as a pastor, I can also admit that seeing people come to faith is what makes ministry the most fun and enjoyable for me. I mean, that's probably the number one reason why most people enter into the ministry to begin with. I mean, they're, they're looking forward to seeing people saved through their very own gospel labor. And it's also why so many of them flame out after a few years because they become so discouraged that after three years, five years, ten years of constant labor, there's not much fruit that they can point to and it discourages them. And so here's what's so surprising about how this story unfolds. After God used Philip as a catalyst to spark this incredible revival in Samaria, instead of allowing Philip to stay a little longer and enjoy the fruit of his own labor, God strangely, abruptly calls Philip to go on to the road to Gaza, which we're told was a desert place. That's what's surprising. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, right after he witnesses all these amazing things, he's smack in the middle of it, incredible things happening all around him. Churches have to be planted. You know, disciples have to be raised up. And an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. What's going on here? That's the title of the message, The Road to Gaza, and the first point of the outline, To a Desert Place. What is going on here? As a young Christian, I was taught that there are two roads in the Bible that has special significance. These roads will be familiar to you. The first road is the Damascus Road, which we will actually cover in the next chapter, where we read about Paul's dramatic conversion. The Damascus Road is where Jesus essentially knocks us off of our throne and calls us to follow him. 
It's a road where we experience a genuine life transformation. If you're a Christian, you wouldn't have had the same experience as Paul did. But Jesus did reveal himself to you as, as your Lord at one point in your life. And he did change your life. So all of us, if we're Christians, we all had some kind of Damascus Road experience. So that's an important road. The second road is the road to Emmaus, which is mentioned in Luke chapter 24. The road to Emmaus is where Jesus appeared to his dejected disciples and taught them that all of, all of Scripture pointed to his death and resurrection. The road to Emmaus is a road that we all need to travel on as well. It's where Jesus teaches us how to to study his word, and it's where he teaches us how to center all of life upon him. But I want to suggest today that there's a third road that we should all become familiar with as well. And that third road is the road to Gaza. The Samaria was a place of revival in this story, Gaza was the exact opposite. It was a desert place, and historians have confirmed this. They say that by Philip's day, Gaza was virtually a dead city. It was destroyed 50 years prior, and the Romans were trying to rebuild it, but much of it still lay in ruins. So God was telling Philip to leave a place of joyful revival where there are thousands of souls to care for, to go to a desert place where there was virtually nothing going on. Humanly speaking, it made no sense whatsoever. Our most, our most competent modern-day missiologists always emphasize the importance of targeting the most well-populated cities of our day because the large cities are essentially the cultural centers that shape the rest of the country, and even the world is their argument. Sometimes you'll hear experts say that God loves the cities more because there are more, there are more people present there, simply put. So what mission organization in their right mind would send anyone to a desert place? It makes no sense. But in this story, God does. It's surprising. Philip is taken away from where all the action is and is told to take the road to Gaza. And surprisingly, Philip, he does not complain, but he humbly obeys. There is no grumbling spirit. He's faithful. So if the Damascus Road teaches us about conversion and the road to Emmaus teaches us about how all the scriptures testify of Christ, then I would like to suggest that the road to Gaza is meant to teach us about being content as we serve God in the desert place and how we're called to faithfully walk in obedience as we recognize that God's ways are higher than ours. Brothers, sisters, have you been on the road to Gaza yet in your own lives? Have you learned the important lesson of humbly 
and faithfully serving God in your desert places. If you haven't been on that road yet, may God use this message to put you on that road so that you may learn along with the rest of us. Part two, the restless wanderer. While Philip is on the road to Gaza, by God's providence, he meets an Ethiopian man. Now, there are a few important details given to us about this Ethiopian man that's worthy of our reflection. Two things that immediately jump out at us is that this man was, number one, a eunuch, and two, he was a man of great wealth and power. Now, it might be strange to our modern ears to hear those two things juxtaposed together, but in ancient times, if you were born into a family of low social status and you had slim to no chance of moving up the social ladder, some men, they intentionally chose to become a eunuch by surgery, right, emasculating themselves, so that they had a chance to obtain greater wealth and social status. It made much more sense back then, given how there was so much more abject poverty in those days. Um, but they, they chose to become eunuchs because you just weren't allowed to serve in the royal palaces next to the queen or the king's concubines unless you were made a eunuch. In their minds, it was one way to, to climb the social ladder and to, to, to make a life for themselves, really. Basically, eunuchs traded away a life of having their own family and children so that they can gain more wealth, and status and security in life. So in the case of this man, he was a eunuch, but just as he probably planned, he served as a court official of the queen herself. But even in that, you know, court, he was a man who held a prominent position. His specific job was to be in charge of all of her treasure, all of her money, all of her wealth. So he was in an extremely powerful position. He was something like the Secretary of Treasury in our modern-day context, and that's why he was riding on a chariot. One commentator writes, most people in those days traveled on foot. The prosperous rode on a donkey. Military generals rode on horseback. But a chariot signaled great power and wealth. This man was powerful and wealthy. Another important detail we're given is that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah when Philip found him. So he was an Ethiopian, a man from Africa. But he was interested, for some reason, in the Jewish faith. That should pique your interest. You have to ask the question, why is it? How is that possible? What's going on here? I mean, no one knows for sure how he heard about the Jewish faith, but some scholars speculate that since King Solomon's day, the Jewish religion's fame and influence stretched all the way to parts of Africa. Some of you may remember the Queen of Sheba in Solomon's day. Uh, It's believed that she was from the region of Ethiopia. First Kings chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Remember her? 
uh, that, that queen. Uh, she was from Ethiopia, evidently. So she could have been the connection. There, there could have been, you know, uh, just a tradition there in Ethiopia uh, speaking and, and writing about what's happening in Jerusalem, perhaps. But regardless of how this Ethiopian man became interested in the Jewish religion, we're supposed to notice here that he's this rich and powerful man who essentially made it in the world. He's very successful, and yet there's an undeniable void in his heart, an emptiness that he's trying to fill. So he's this restless wanderer. This is not easy to catch right away, but from Ethiopia, he had to likely travel several weeks, some people say several months, to make this trip to Jerusalem. But I'm asking, for what exactly? I mean, you're a Gentile. Like, if you're a Gentile, you had very limited access to the temple, but he was also a eunuch. And as a eunuch, if, if you had this eunuch status... That may have given him privilege in his own country, but in Jerusalem, eunuchs, by God's law, were not allowed to enter any part of the temple. I mean, if you're a Gentile, you could at least enter the Gentile court, but if you're a eunuch, you were banned completely. You were cut off, absolutely. And so I'm, I'm thinking after weeks of travel, he would have been treated as an outcast within the Jewish society, no access to the temple or anything religious. But for him, the long trip must have still been worth it. Maybe it reveals to us his, his deep hunger, right? his, his, his huge void in his heart. When Philip saw him on the road, he was reading the prophet Isaiah that's an important detail as well because think about it. There were no Bible apps you can pull out from your smartphone. Like, there's no way anyone could have had access to you know, a simple reading of Isaiah. Even, even there, there were no printed books in those days. Right? There was no NIV or ESV you can just kind of pull out. and you, It wasn't like that. Um, for him to be able to read the prophet Isaiah from his chariot meant that he had to have bought, probably in Jerusalem, these rare and precious scrolls, right? These massive scrolls that, that, that couldn't even contain, you know, probably a cha full chapter of Isaiah. But he had to have these scrolls. And, and some people speculate that it would have required at least one large wagon to be able to lug around all the scrolls just from Isaiah. But this is the picture. Like he's, he's making this arduous journey with this huge wagon behind him. In other words, he was doing everything humanly possible to fill the void in his heart. He was a man of high status, yet his soul was longing for God. As I was thinking about this story, that the words of Augustine came to mind. 
this famous quote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. I'm sure that's exactly how many of you felt before the Lord, before the Lord filled the void in your hearts. And if I asked you to share your testimonies, I bet that many of you would be able to mention someone like Philip, who was instrumental in leading you to Christ. How many people, how many Philips do you have in your life? For me, there were multiple people God used. There were multiple Philips. So all of our stories may be a little different, but the common thread for all of us is that God was the one orchestrating all the details that eventually led us to faith. He sent the right people for us that we could be ministered to. So as we read this story, we're not to think that it was a mere coincidence or an accident that Philip met this Ethiopian eunuch on the road. Of course it wasn't. This was no coincidence. Rather, it was God's providence, as we like to say. God, he works all things together for the good of those who love him according to his purpose, and, and this is no exception. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that for many of you, you thought initially that you were the one searching for God and doing all the hard work to find him, but you later realized that it was actually God who was the one pursuing you all along, that you were the one who was found by God, through his act of mercy. It was while you were an outcast, unworthy to enter into his presence, he was the one who reached out to you and invited you in. And that's how you became his forever. And that's what we see here as well. The Spirit of God said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip, he runs, and he hears the eunuch reading Isaiah and asks, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch was like, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to hop up on the chariot with him, and it says the passage of the scripture that he was reading was, this, which is Isaiah chapter 53, and if you're wondering how in the world does this Ethiopian read Hebrew, the Hebrew text, and he's not, it's, it's very likely the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, but he's reading this text that speaks of the lamb that was slaughtered for our sake. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. His life was taken away from the earth. He was slaughtered. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is this about himself, Isaiah, or is this about someone else? And, and Philip, he opens his mouth. It's interesting that <laughs> um, Luke includes that, that Philip opens his mouth like, duh. I, I find this helpful, though, because sometimes... I don't know, I think about our context. We often believe that we can simply not open our mouths and testify of Christ. 
like through our actions. You know, our actions speak louder than words, we, we, like, we love to say. But um, that may be true in many instances, but at some point, brothers and sisters, you still have to open your mouths to testify of Christ. And so, thankfully, Philip, he opens his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, this scripture, beginning here means, it wasn't just this scripture, but beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so I want you to consider this. If this man was so determined, right, to get his hands on these precious scrolls, and he's reading through Isaiah, and if he had the, this, the, uh, the wealth, right, and the resources and the determination, then I, I, I bet you that he would not have just read this one chapter, but he, would, he also read the earlier chapter, chapter 11, where we read, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. And it mentions these foreign nations, that God's going to bring in his chosen remnant, his elect from places like Assyria and Egypt and Pathros. And it also mentions Cush. If you didn't know, the land of Cush was, was essentially Ethiopia. And the eunuch would have known this. So this must have given him great hope. And I bet you that he also read chapter 56, where we read, this is very encouraging, this must have this floored him, at least piqued his interest greatly. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. That's how eunuchs felt because they couldn't bear, they, they couldn't have children. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, and here's the word of hope for the eunuch. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And what name would that be other than Jesus? And so that, that's what Philip must have been expounding on, that your hope, Ethiopian eunuch, is in the name of Jesus you will no longer be cut off. And so Philip, he may have begun with Isaiah 53, but it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have explained what Isaiah 11 and 56 also meant in light of who Jesus is and what his promise was for this Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian man must have known that because he was broken at physically and spiritually, that he was unfit to enter into the temple of God and, and be in God's presence. But the good news offered to him was that because of the Lamb of God who was slain for him, he was no longer cut off but can now enter into the new temple, the new temple that Jesus built for him through his own resurrection body and enjoy eternal fellowship with God. 
Now, I know that none of us are biological eunuchs, but some of us may very well be spiritual eunuchs. And what I mean by that is some of you may have traded away a life of having a family of your own in order that you could give all of your attention to your work and building your career. Wealth, status, and power is what matters to you the most. And so you have treated marriage as a major hindrance to yourself. And there are plenty of people like this in our day, right? They, they just date people. Some, some of them cohabitate with the opposite sex, basically enjoying the benefits of marriage without assuming the actual responsibility of marriage. That is the modern-day eunuch. The only reason why they can enjoy sex is because something called contraceptives. Back then, they had none. But if that's how you've been living, and you've been feeling a huge void in your heart, that's God's mercy to you. God is giving you mercy so that you can seek after him, just like this Ethiopian eunuch was. And it could very well be that God is wanting very soon to occupy that void in your heart and be the one that actually satisfies and becomes rest for your restless souls. And if that's you, if that's where you are, please do not hesitate to, to make that known to one of your pastors. You can come to me or any of our pastors and let it be known of where you are so we can pray with you and offer you further guidance in your walk with the Lord. Part three, faithful followers. This is how our passage ends today, um, verse 39 and on. And when they came up out of the water, so he got baptized because he really wanted to be baptized on the spot. And there was no established church at the time, so I mean, what else can you do? But when he came out, out of the water, water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And, but, but it says, Philip found himself as, at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so you see here, the eunuch is baptized. Amazing, amazing moment in his life, and he's just man of great wealth and power, and I'm sure he would have wanted to handsomely reward Philip in some way for taking time out of his day to, to basically change his life forever, right? Uh, this is no small deal. But God does this again. You know, it, it could feel frustrating uh, for some of you, but it says the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch was like, where, where did, where's Philip going? Where did he go? Right? And it seems very abrupt, but it says Philip found himself uh, at another city, Azotus, and eventually in Caesarea, because God evidently called him to these places to continue his ministry. And this is a little confusing but I think there's something to learn here that's important. You know, I, I, I had a, a high, very, very high view of Deacon Stephen 
when I was uh, looking at his life and ministry more carefully uh, several weeks ago. He was the one martyred for his faith in chapter 7, right? But Deacon Philip is a very inspiring character as well, if you think about it, you know? Which prophet in the, in the Old Testament is known for his constant grumbling and complaining? Jonah, right? Jonah is known for being a complainer and someone who did the very opposite of what God told him to do, right? But who is Philip? Philip is a deacon, and he's someone who was content. He seemed like he was always content to do whatever he was asked to do, right? God, what, you want me to go to Samaria, enemy territory? Okay, I'll do it, right? There was no doubting God. You want me to take the road to Gaza? I'll go, no problem. Where next, Lord? Azutis? I'm there. Caesarea? No problem. I'm just going to go town to town as I make my way up to Caesarea and just preach the gospel wherever I am, God. Let me, let me share one slide with you to kind of give you a picture of uh, what his travels were like. I rarely share slides, so this is a special day. <laughs> and you can't even see, like, the bottom, right? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna fix this eventually. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a projector probably over there somewhere, and then it'll, it'll be projected here. So um, that's the plan. But anyway, here here's Jerusalem. That's where all the action started. Amazing things happened at Pentecost. I mean, basically there was this mass explosion, Holy Spirit explosion, and uh, from here to Samaria, this was the cursed land. Right? Jews wanted to avoid at all costs because the people were just so compromised. Um, from Jerusalem to Samaria, I, I found out it was like 35 miles. And you have Philip having to walk, right? So think about walking 35 miles. How long do you think it will take for you? Right? At least two days walking pretty fast. Um, someone, someone online was like, I can manage to walk about 20 miles a day, but I would have a hard time the next day. I would, I would, there wouldn't be enough time to recover, right? 20, 25 miles would be absolute max a day. 35 miles from here to here. So it, was, it wasn't an easy journey, even, even just going to Samaria. But God, God takes them from here to here, and there is a mass explosion there as well. Okay, uh, similar things happening in Samaria, what, what happened in Jerusalem. And now God, after using Philip here, he says, okay, go back down. And so he has to go all the way back down to Jerusalem and then to this road that leads to Gaza. That, that's the road that leads to Gaza. So that's a substantial distance. And God is somewhere down there, right? And then Azotus is right here, okay? And then he has to make all the way up to Caesarea, which seems to be the place he eventually settled and had, had a family and had, it says, four daughters who are believers. And so this goes to show how faithful Philip was as a man. He's a faithful evangelist, faithful husband, faithful father. 
he's a blessed man. But from Philip's vantage point, I'm thinking like the encounter with this random Ethiopian eunuch on his road to Gaza, it, it may have seemed, at least to me, if I'm in issues, it, it would have seemed like a, a waste of time and they missed opportunity because I, I, I need to be in Samaria where there's a lot more ministry uh, to be doing. But history gives us a different picture. Um, this is the benefit we have as people who, who can now study what, what has taken place throughout history post-Philip, okay? But the road that Philip and the Ethiopian traveled on eventually led to North Africa, okay? And, and so what's happening here is that the seed of the gospel was being planted first in this eunuch, and this eunuch, he took it to North Africa, and you may not know this, but some of the most influential people in church history were northern Africans, including Cyprian, the well-known bishop of Carthage, and Tertullian, who was even better known, and even better known than him is Augustine, the great Saint Augustine. All of these men were considered to be early church fathers, and they were extremely influential in shaping church history. This is no small thing. Because it's virtually impossible to imagine what the church in Europe would have been like without the contribution of people like Augustine. Much of our Reformed heritage actually has been shaped by Augustine's theological insights and reflections. We are indebted to people like him. And it's not possible, brothers and sisters, to explain Korean church history without mentioning the European and American missionaries who sacrificed their very own lives to bring the gospel to a foreign land. They were our Philips who chose to take the road to Gaza in their own historical context, you see. There's this domino effect we witness in history, but the first domino, so to speak, was Philip's willingness to take the lowly road to Gaza into a desert place and share the gospel with this obscure Ethiopian eunuch. We don't even know his name. So, brothers and sisters, we do not know how God will use our work eventually. And we don't need to know. All we need to believe and know is that God is able to do far more than what we could ever ask or imagine by his power that is at work in us. Amen? Our job is to be faithful in whatever assignment he gives us, no matter how big or small. If your job is to teach another Sunday school class or Bible study, do it faithfully. That's important work as well, even if it may not seem like it at the time. If your job is to change another dirty diaper at 2 a.m. in the morning, and do that faithfully as well, without complaining. Because if you don't do it, no one else will. And your, your kid will literally die if you don't change his diapers, right? No joke. It's a very important work. Philip was someone who was incredibly faithful. But he was never really acknowledged for his service in any appropriate way based on our human 
expectations, right? I mean, Stephen, more people know about Stephen. You know, Stephen is elevated more. And then you have, of course, Paul, who comes right after Philip. It's like Stephen, and then people forget Philip. They just go right to Paul. And that's what I like most about Philip, though. He's someone who just humbly did his job with no desire to be recognized. He's an example of humble obedience. And in my mind, he resembles so much of our Savior who was willing to suffer, even to the point of death, for the ones he came to serve. It seems to me that Philip chose to gladly walk down that same path his Savior did. And to me, that's what the road of Gaza represents. It's a road of humility and faithful obedience. And it's a road where you're taught to trust in God's sovereign purposes. So then, brothers and sisters, can I invite you to take the road to Gaza with me? Can we humbly go wherever the Lord leads us while being obedient to his will, even if it may lead us away from where all the excitement and action may be, even if it may not make much sense to us in the moment, and even if we find ourselves in a desert place, Brothers and sisters, can we trust in the Lord regardless of the circumstances? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we confess that we would rather be in places of great revival than be led into a desert place. We would rather experience the mountaintop rather than be left alone in the valley. But you have shown us today that the road to Gaza is the road of faithful obedience it's a road where we learn to trust in your sovereign purposes and plans. And though your purposes and timing may often confuse us, we acknowledge that your ways are indeed higher than our ways. And just as you have planted a gospel seed in Africa through the humble ministry of Philip, which in turn shaped the entire history of the world, we know that you are able to plant a gospel seed through us in the hearts of others as we minister to people in their various contexts, whether at home, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and in our church. Grant us the courage and humility to share Christ to others for his name's sake, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'll stand together and give praise to God.